So whenever we approach a passage of scripture like we'll do today and we do each week, um, one of the things we always have to kind of ask ourselves is, why is this here? Why are these words so important that they needed to be included in the pages of scripture? Jesus, um, in in this text we're about to read, he repeatedly says, I have told you this. I have told you this. I have told you this. So for instance, in verse 1, he says, I have told you this so that you will not fall away because of the opposition that is coming. And again, in verse 4, I have told you this so that you will remember that I warned you about them when I leave you. Which for them then raises a question. If Jesus is telling us that he's leaving, but that we're body and soul together in physical and spiritual life, then what are we going to do? How are we going to go on if you're not going to be here, Jesus? Can we phone a friend? Do we get to call in air support or reinforcements? Is there any help that we're going to have? And Jesus addresses those questions that his disciples may have in reading this passage, or in this passage that we're about to read. John chapter 15, verse 26, uh, into chapter 16 And I will probably stop at verse 11 and then explain other parts. Here's the word of God. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will bless the reading of your word that you will help us to understand the work of your Holy Spirit and what the Helper does for us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at that time of year where there's many graduations, parties, and celebrations to, to be had. We were at one this weekend for uh, my son Riley as he graduated, and he's now Dr. Conrad. I can't even believe that, but so he's a physical therapist. Um, but as you have graduated, you have not made it through school Whatever grade it is, whether it's eighth grade or it's high school or it's college or graduate school, you have not made it through on your own. You would not have made it if it weren't for those who came alongside you to help you. Guidance counselors, teachers, clinical instructors. You wouldn't have been able to do it without the help of others. And so, even as we remember graduations like that, it's important for us to also remember that God gives us help. He gives us a helper, an advocate, who comes alongside us in life. He also gives us the church, which is a great help, and the advocate, the helper, the spirit, works through people in the church to encourage us as well. 
And what I want you to see today that Jesus is pointing out here is that you should expect opposition to your Christian faith. That's his premise that he's giving them. You're going to expect opposition to the Christian faith. But know you're not alone, that you have a helper, the Spirit. And so what does the helper do? And today we're not going to consider the nature of the Spirit and who the Spirit is in terms of relation to the Trinity. There's lots of things packed into this passage about that. We're going to look at what the helper does. What does the Spirit do? And the first point is this. The Spirit helps by convicting the world. And we see this in verses 9, 10, and 11. In verse 9, you can put that on the screen. It tells us that he's going to convict with regard to sin for not believing in Jesus. Right? So this is one of the things the Spirit does is brings conviction. Now, conviction cuts two ways, right? Conviction can be, hey, you are tried, you are found guilty, you're convicted and judged. Conviction can also mean I've been convicted that I'm guilty, but now I'm sensitive to that and I have a change of heart, right? So it all lands on what does the person who's convicted do? How do they respond to such conviction? And so one of the beautiful parts of this is it means that the Spirit is convicting the world of sin actually gives us hope that people will hear and believe the message of Jesus and be saved. And do what happened today, get baptized. Right? That gives us hope for that. The core message of Christianity is not try harder to be a better person. When, when I stand before judgment, before God, when you stand before God, what, what are you going to say when he says, why should I let you in, into my kingdom? I mean, I, my answer to that is my only hope is that I've been washed and cleansed and covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And because you love him, you said you will love me. That's my hope. That, that's what I'm clinging to. Not because I tried harder and got better, though I might have in some ways. Even if I got better, it wasn't good enough. Because I still make mistakes. I still mess up. I still sin. This is why the baptism's here, right? The baptism is a reminder to us of the cleansing. Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that Jesus is a good teacher or the Savior? He's both, right? But a lot of times I think what happens functionally in life is we treat Jesus like a life coach. Jesus, I need a little of this. I need some relational advice. Uh, if you could bless my finances, that'd be extra special. And if you could do this for me, that'd be great. And Jesus becomes our life coach. And we think, if I just got a little help, I would be okay. In other words, I'm not too bad. I don't really need saving. I just need, need a little extra help. When Mallory and Carter were standing here, they were getting wet. They weren't like, I just need a little help to get water on me. Like, no, I need to be cleansed. I need to be washed. I need a new heart, right? It's a whole new life is what they're saying. The Spirit convicts of sin because people don't believe in Jesus and it gives us hope because people will believe in Jesus. But in verse 10, it goes on and says that the Spirit convicts with regard to righteousness because the Spirit shows what true righteousness is. What does this verse mean? He's like, I'm going away to the Father, you know. And so what's the Spirit going to do? Yes, the Spirit is going to highlight what true righteousness looks like. But one of the things I want to emphasize to you today from this passage is this, that the Jewish leaders, the Jewish leaders consider themselves righteous. And what Jesus is saying as he's about to be betrayed, about to get crucified is, 
the Spirit will show you what true righteousness is. So my disciples, as he's talking to them, you're going to see the Pharisees and all these religious leaders who are claiming to be righteous, but let the Spirit show you where righteousness is. Now, if you put yourself in their sandals and they're walking around going, I wonder what that means. And then they follow Jesus after he's arrested. Then they abandon him. They see his, they know he's tried. They, they see him get crucified and they see self-righteous leaders in the name of God kill the Son of God. They're going, something's not right about this. That's not righteous. And what is righteous? Righteousness is Jesus. Jesus is proved to be righteous because he is going to leave and go to the Father. He is going to rise from the dead and go to the Father. He is going to say, in other words, I told you this is who I am. I told you this is what I came to do. I called my shot, and when I rise from the dead, you're going to know I'm the righteous one who brings healing in his wings. I'm the righteous one. And the Spirit will convict of that righteousness. You know, there's an application to be made here, and this might be a bit of a tangent, but I think it's worth going. Worth going there. Um, it is common when people need to exert power over others to claim that they have God on their side, right? Because what you need is you need to be right, and if you can claim some higher power in that, then it backs up your rightness, and you get to do what you want to do. And so that's a common thing that happens. It's not just common today. It was then. You remember in verse 2 what he told him? He said, there are going to be those who... Um, kill you thinking they are offering service to God. Right? This is the history of the world. It's the history of the world in this way. It's what the Jews did to Jesus. It's what Saul did before his conversion when he was overseeing the arrest, the imprisonment, and the killing of Christians. And then he got converted and became the apostle Paul. Right? It's what happens in some parts and sects of Islam in which to do away with the infidel. We've seen Christians beheaded. It happens between Hindus and Muslims, Hindus and Christians. In fact, Christians or those who are claiming a Christian name have committed great atrocities in the name of God, but doing wrong in doing it, right? What I'm pointing out to you is it's common for people when they want to do something that is wrong to claim that God's on their side to do it. And some of you are probably thinking, that is exactly why we don't need religion. We just need to do away with it and we'd be better off. But I would say that's what our society's trying now. And I would say what we see is a new religion forming. Let me give you an example. Um, what you do, right, is when you have, a, have an issue before, you have to define a problem. So you define the problem, you name the problem, um, in, in religious circles, in Christian circles, we call that problem sin. It's what the Bible calls it, going away from God's law. But you have a problem. So we have a problem. And our, the problem today is our social structures that are unjust. And those might be religious things. They might be gender-related. They might be sex-related. They might be money-related. Um, whatever it is, there's things that people will consider unjust. You're born into those social structures, original sin, which holds you back from what you need to do. And so, you have to figure out how to undo those. Now, please understand what I'm saying right here. I'm not saying that this isn't true. This, this can be true. There can be real injustice in structures. I'm simply pointing out that even if you say there's not God, you're still going to make religious kinds of claims, calling things sinful, unjust, 
not for the greater good, and then you're going to have a solution. What's the solution? The resolution to the problem comes by awakening, coming by an enlightenment, an understanding, a new birth maybe even, to realize the new virtues that you should stand for and to signal those virtues. So there's a sanctifying process you go through in this awakening. There's this, this being born and this stripping away of the old things, of power and icons and, and systems and structures. And then eventually what happens today is because of that cleansing and that sanctifying, people get canceled so that freedom and liberation can then come about to the oppressed. Please understand again, I am not saying that there, that there are never times when injustice needs to be undone, where freedom needs to come about, and where oppression has been real. I'm simply wanting you to see that even if you say in our society that we don't want a God, or we don't want this in our life, you can't escape religion and trying to make things religious, because you're always claiming a sin problem, or a, a problem, a solution, right and wrong, and a way to cleanse and purify from it. But the huge problem that our society has in this today is they have no solution for atonement or salvation. And so what you get is people who are polarized because they're canceling one another out. They're saying this is wrong, this isn't right. And they want to say God's on their side sometimes. They're saying there's this problem that needs purifying change. One of the challenges, one of the problems that our society has in this is they're always changing the standard to throw over, throw, overthrow whatever the next structure they build is. There's no end game. There's no stop to it. It's always just progression of throw over, overthrow the next thing, which means in 50 years you'll look back and go, wow, all those things we did then were wrong because that's what we do now. Well, then was it right or wrong? I'm confused. There's no way to say this is actually right and wrong other than what we feel is good for the moment of the day. And they have no means of atonement or salvation. It's simply cancel and purge. It's a vicious cycle without any hope of heaven. What Christianity does, it says, yeah, there's a problem. And it's not just an individual problem. It's a corporate problem that exists too. And it's sin. And yeah, you need resolution to it. You need cleansing. You need sanctifying. You need a new life. You need enlightenment. You need to be born again. Yes, you need all of that. But you also need a savior. You need atonement, one who can make things right for you. And you need the hope of paradise restored, of heaven. And Christianity offers that salvation and that paradise restored. Now, back to what the Spirit does. And then the Spirit is going to convict people because of righteousness. All people want to be righteous. But the Spirit will lead us to see that Jesus is the place in which we find true righteousness and what he has for us. And he goes on in verse 11 and says that the Spirit will uh, convict with regard to judgment because Satan, the one who, the ruler of this world is a way of saying Satan, has already been judged so when Jesus rises from the dead victorious over evil, then he is the victor. And he will prove that Satan has been judged and lost. He's already done, defeated. It's proof that God has accepted the sacrifice for sin. And that, that gives us hope. And the question for you is, do you have the Spirit? And you might be thinking, I don't know. How do I know if I have the Spirit? 
Well, the Spirit is going to do these things. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he is the righteous way, the way of salvation, the way of life? Do you believe that he's defeated evil and that will one day reign? Do you believe these things? If the Spirit is convicting you of those things, then you're believing and you're saying, yes, okay, I believe what the Spirit is saying, then you actually have to take the step to trust and say, okay, I trust. That's like giving the keys over, like, okay, here's the keys to my life, the keys to the house. You can have in, you can rule. I trust you. I'll follow you. And you got to, if you haven't asked for it, just ask. Ask God. God, save me. I need it. Be my savior. Give me the spirit to lead me, to guide me in life. So the spirit, <clears throat> excuse me, the spirit, that first point, is helps by convicting the world. But the second main point is this. The spirit helps by guiding followers of Jesus into the truth. Jesus commissions his apostles to write the New Testament, and he's saying the Spirit is going to help you do this. It's going to the Spirit will lead you into truth to write down what needs to be written down for the generations to come. But I think there's another meaning when he says this in verse 13. Let's put verse 13 on the screen. When the Spirit of truth comes, he'll guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. That applies to his disciples writing Scripture, but it also applies to us, the disciples of disciples of disciples, generations down. Not that we're writing scripture, but that the Spirit is going to help us discern truth. Now, what does that mean? It means there's no mixed messages from God. It means that whatever the scripture says, the Spirit is going to coincide with and say. It means you can't go, well, I know the Bible says don't commit adultery, but I really wish I had more romance in life, and so I feel like the Spirit really wants me to enjoy it, and I'm going to do that. No. The Spirit and Jesus are not at odds with one another. You might be at odds with them, but they're not. The Scripture and the Spirit, the Spirit will lead you into truth, which is defined in Scripture. We need to read our Bibles. We need to pray for spiritual understanding. The Spirit, we're told in Ephesians, grieves over sin because he sealed us for redemption. And he grieves over sin when we're rebellious toward that. We're told in Romans 8 that the Spirit prays for us with words that groans cannot express. The Spirit is interceding on our behalf. We're told in Romans 8 that the Spirit works with our spirit to confirm our adoption and remind us we are sons and daughters of the King. Sometimes our sin and our brokenness is obvious. It's out in the open and sometimes it's hidden. Sometimes it's buried deep within from experiences we've had in life, from pain, from trauma, or abuse, or shame. And those things are deep in there. And the Spirit can bring healing there to bring truth to bear, the truth of the gospel and the goodness of God into the brokenness of your life. But here's the difficulty in that. Those things exist in you, and sometimes you don't even know it. And the way you react in life might be because of something that's happened to you in the past, and you haven't made that connection. The Spirit can help reveal that. Ask the Spirit to help reveal these areas of pain and shame in your life. Because if you don't name the pain, you cannot heal what stays hidden. I'm not saying it's going to be easy, but the Spirit will bring healing, real redemption through that. You have to discover it and uncover it. 
and you will probably need help from others, from friends, maybe books or podcasts, maybe from a pastor, maybe even from a counselor like those at Wellspring or other Christian counseling agencies. So the Spirit works to guide you about what is right and wrong in following Jesus, right? But the third point is the Spirit also works to glorify Christ. He helps by glorifying Jesus. In verse 14, we see this. It says, he will glorify me for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see the unity of Jesus and the Spirit. What is mine, the Spirit's going to declare to you. And he's going to do it to glorify and exalt me. How do you know if the Spirit is working in your life? Here's a clue. One of the clues. There's others, but this is one of them. If you're making a big deal about Jesus, the Spirit's at work. Because verse 14 tells us the Spirit's job is to glorify and exalt Jesus. And if you're like, wow. I'm amazed by Jesus and what he, who he is and what he has done for me. That's the work of the Spirit in your life. Because his job is to help you to glorify and exalt Jesus. When our worship team calls us to praise God together because the scriptures call us to do that, and you want to sing out and praise and you're like, yes, that is the Spirit working in you to exalt and glorify the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does. Helps us make a lot out of Jesus He reveals to us the benefits of redemption in Christ. When we explore all those benefits of God's redemption and salvation brought to us in Christ, that is the work of the Spirit helping you to understand and see that so that you will exalt and glorify Christ. It's also true that the Spirit works in emotional ways, emotionally moving you. Like, wow, now that might happen for different people. Some people are emotionally moved and and that doesn't manifest itself physically a lot, but it is internally. And others manifest itself all over themselves physically and they can't help it. But the Spirit moves emotionally, gives you experiences in different ways that your heart will be moved. I mean, one of the questions is, can you say, I love Jesus. I really love Jesus. Jesus. That's an emotional statement, right? You would say to a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a spouse, right? I love you. Can you say I love Jesus? That's a spiritual thing working in you to say, wow, I really am drawn and captivated by him. That's exalting and glorifying the work of Christ. C.S. Lewis said it this way, and this quote is here on the screen for you as well. He says, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's not just a compliment to say you're beautiful. It's part of expressing it is the delight of doing so. And when the Spirit is working in you, you will delight in Christ to rejoice, to follow in his ways. Yes, I want to do what what you ask me to do, Jesus. I want to. That's the Spirit working. Now, there's times when you're not going to want to, when you're going to want to pursue sin, and the Spirit will work to convict you of sin and righteousness. And when you're wanting to follow and turn and repent, it's the Spirit working again. This is the life of the Spirit, personal, powerful, in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus. Don't neglect that. And if you feel alone, if you feel like, no, I don't know, I just don't, I don't know if the Spirit's with me, then make sure you've asked God to be your Savior and to send a Spirit to be with you. And you won't be alone, even in the most trying times of life. 
There's a story that I find both humorous, interesting, and poignant. It is of a Polish pianist and statesman named Paderewski. He was once scheduled to perform at Carnegie Hall. I believe it was the late 1800s or early 1900s. It was a black tie affair. There was a mother who chose to go and hear the great Paderewski, and she brought her nine-year-old son with her, hoping that it would encourage him and inspire him to be more diligent in practicing his piano if he heard the great one play. The boy grew tired of waiting for the concert to begin as they were there early to get their seat and people were shuffling into Carnegie Hall and he got fidgety and couldn't sit still as young boys do. And without his mother noticing, he got up and left his seat. He was attracted by that beautiful black grand piano sitting on the stage and he walked right up onto that stage, pulled up the piano bench, sat down, and began to play chopsticks. He kept plunking away at chopsticks, and at first people started seeing that and getting attention, and like, well, look at that, that's cute little boys up there playing. But he kept going because he was nervous and scared, and so he just kept playing chopsticks. And after a while, they're like, okay, fun's over. Get the boy off stage. Where's his mother? She's like, oh. Paderowski hears what's going on from backstage and comes out and sees the boy playing walks up behind him, puts his arms around him, and begins to improvise a counter melody to chopsticks on the spot. And whispers in his ear, you're doing great. Keep on going. Whatever you do, don't stop playing. And he didn't. And the crowd cheered. When you feel like you might be left alone on the stage of life, Jesus is saying, you're not. I have sent the helper to be with you. Know that my arms are wrapped around you. Keep going. Don't stop. Keep going. And your life will become like beautiful music, exalting Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will indeed bless us with your spirit as you have promised. Jesus, I pray as you have promised that you will bless us with your spirit. And spirit, as you know and delight to come upon us, please do so. Lead us and guide us in life. Remind us of the truth and the beauty of Jesus for us. Would you help our hearts to sing new songs, to rejoice in you? We ask all of this in the mighty and wonderful name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.